we didn't really rehearse that ahead of time. I just came in and asked Graham if he would read for me, and I realized that I didn't ask him about the name Onesimus. But he got it right, so that's awesome. <laughs> I, I pronounced that wrong the entire... Oh, there it is. I'm in the wrong spot. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> the first time I read through that, I called it One Simus. Then I learned how to pronounce it. <laughs> so we're going through this, this, uh, this series on the church, and we started with this sort of great purpose that God has held hidden for ages and for generations. Uh, the uh, purpose of the church, um, which he has now revealed, and this cosmic purpose that we have to make evident the wisdom of God to the powers and principalities, both heavenly and earthly powers and principalities. And then we've been going through God's heart for the church, God's desire for the church, and... Um, one of the things that I fell on this week, um, it's not exactly the sermon I was going to preach, but I fell on this week, was this issue of reconciliation and um, just sort of a, a baseline foundational reality of God's hope for the church and his heart for the church and his expectations of the church. And where we get it from, we're going to use Philemon as the example, but where we get it from is actually uh, in 2 Corinthians five eighteen and 19, and I'll just read that for you. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. There's a ministry of reconciliation and a message of reconciliation, and God has entrusted this to the church. Paul, when he says us, he's talking about the Christian believers uh, in Corinth, and he says, we as a church have a ministry. Not only do we have this cosmic purpose, and we have this great commandment, and we have uh, this... Uh, purpose of revealing the wisdom of God. But here's another thing that scripture tells us. Paul says that the church has the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. So I thought today what I would do is I would just look at, well, I'm going to look at a a number of issues around reconciliation, but hone in on one specific part of reconciliation, which is the intercession of brothers and sisters on behalf of others. That for people to be reconciled, somebody needs to intercede. So let's just pray. Father God, As we go into your word this morning, I just pray that I would be clear that uh, your word would take precedent, that your Holy Spirit would be at work and fix in the hearts and minds uh, of each of us uh, your purpose for us today, that we would be illuminated and encouraged by the words of Paul in Philemon. Amen. So just to set this up, give you maybe a little bit of a word picture that relates to us as being one body. We talked about that over the series, one body in Christ, and that we all are different parts of the body, and uh, we make up the body as all parts working together. And uh, maybe to give you a bit of picture of it, I was uh, maybe four years ago now, four or five years ago, I was a bit of a runner, and uh, so I I actually ran quite a bit. Uh, That was like 20 pounds ago. And... uh, but what happened was I hurt my knee. So I was running. I, I was determined I was going to do half a marathon by the end of the summer. So I pushed myself past my normal 10K, started doing 12, 14, 16, did 20 in September. And doing 20, I hurt my knee. And, uh, and so then when you're walking on a hurt knee, some of you will understand this, then my hip started to hurt. And then as I was walking with a bad knee and a bad hip, then my back started to hurt. And my back wasn't quite right. 
And so with a bad knee and a bad hip and a bad back, I couldn't do the stuff that I used to be able to do. I couldn't help people the way I could help them before. I couldn't, you know, lift as much as I could lift. I just, everything, you know, was just more difficult. My ability to function was impeded, starting with my knee, which spread to my hip, which went to my back. And it just impeded my ability to serve in the community that I was in, in my family, in my church, and just, you know, helping out. And then the other thing that happened along with that is I was just kind of sore all over. You know, when you have those aches and pains, then everything is tender. Everything is sensitive. Basically, no matter what happened to the right side of my body, it hurt. You know, just going upstairs hurt, you know. And uh, things that would not normally have hurt me before began to hurt. And so that's just something you sort of think in your mind as the body of Christ. Just keep that picture in your mind that it may start just with a knee. And you may think it's only an issue with your knee. But then the hip starts to hurt and your back starts to hurt and all of a sudden the body can't function and serve the way that it used to be able to do. It used to be strong. And I used to think reconciliation was something like that. I used to think it was just between two people, right? A couple of people are upset in the church. It's between them. If they come talk to you about it, you just say, you know what? You need to go talk to that person and uh, get it sorted out. It's between you guys. You guys lock yourself in a room and get it sorted out. And, uh, you know, it's just the knee, right? Don't worry about it. But then I realized that it's more than that. That reconciliation does start with two people quite often, but then there's a third party that often requires an intercessor. It requires somebody to go and stand with one or the other or with both and help those two get together. Because if that third party doesn't get involved, then it won't get better. And then I realized even further that the reconciliation, the soreness or the hurt, it begins to involve everybody. The whole body starts to hurt after a while. If you allow that knee to keep hurting, then it's the hip, then it's the back, then it's everything just seems to hurt. And so reconciliation is not just between two people. It involves the whole church. And it needs that crucial role of the intercessor. And that's what we're talking about today, the crucial role of the intercessor. And so the problem that we face is that we are, as the Apostle Paul said, the body with many parts. And although we are reconciled to God, you know, we're not always reconciled with each other. And the Apostle Paul was dealing with us all the time. If the church was perfect and the church was perfectly healthy all the time, we wouldn't have most of the New Testament to read. (laughs) You know, Paul just wouldn't have any writing material because most of the time he's writing about the reality of of a church that's hurting and needs intercession. And so although we're reconciled to God, we're not always reconciled with each other. Although Christ intercedes for us with God, sits at the right hand of the God of God, interceding for us moment by moment, millisecond by millisecond, Christ intercedes with us with God. And, he, and, and, and even though Christ is interceding with us for God, he's left us the task of interceding for each other and carrying out this ministry that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians there, this ministry, this activity of reconciliation. It's a functional thing. It's not just a, it's not just a sort of a mystical thing or just an idea. It's an active thing that we have to be involved in. You've got to get up at some point in the morning and say, I'm going to do the ministry of reconciliation. It's an activity I have to carry out. Everyone who is wounded, everyone who is hurt or estranged or belittled or offended wants to be reconciled, right? Isn't that true? Everybody who has any hurt, any estrangement, any offense wants to be reconciled. However angry we are, however hurt we are, however ashamed we are, deep down we all prefer reconciliation, right? Whether it's in our families with that, you know, cousin or with that mother or father or stepmother, if it's in our own families, we would prefer reconciliation in our hearts. We don't always know how to get there, but that's what we want. 
among friends. When we have friends and something happens and there's a distance or there's just a separation in our hearts, deep down, we want reconciliation. We don't know how to get there all the time, but we want it. We want the relationship restored. We're built for the restoration of relationship. So often we have traveled so far down a crooked road, we just don't know how to get back. You know, or we've inadvertently messed things up or wounded somebody so badly that we just can't imagine for, for ourselves how we're going to make it right. You know, and this can happen at school. It can happen at work. It can happen in our families, especially in our families. It can happen in our church families. And so what, when, what we want to look at is how to make that right. What is this ministry of reconciliation that's been given to the church? And that is exactly where this ministry steps in and why, by God's grace, the Apostle Paul has written and the Holy Spirit has preserved for us the book of Philemon. Because it's in the book of Philemon where we learn about intercession. Sorry, I'm just going to get some water. We learn about intercession. Oh, am I? You're scratching your scruff. Oh, I should have shaved a little cleaner this morning. So we have this in the book of Philemon, very little book, all that by way of introduction, very little book, one chapter, Philemon, don't even have to say the chapter, you just have to say the verse, um, of Philemon, which is Paul just painting for us this picture of intercession. The main point, the idea behind Philemon is that we need to help one another with reconciliation, that it's not just two people that you lock in a room and keep locked until the blood stops, (laughs) that there has to be help, that people can get so bound up in the hurt and the wound and the offense that they cannot come together without assistance. And that's what the story, that's not the story, but that's what the, it is a story. That's the, that's what Paul is writing about here of what has happened with Onesimus and Philemon. So just as the priests of the Old Testament interceded for the nation with God, there's one picture of intercession, the, the priests interceding for the nation of Israel. And just as Christ has come to be a superior intercessor for us with the Father, then we go from priest to Christ to us to be intercessors for each other and for the world. So the epistle to Philemon, which was just read to you, was written about the same time that Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. And the letters were sent uh, with with Tychius and uh, was accompanied, and he was traveling with Onesimus, and, uh, and we discover that Onesimus, in this, in this letter, we discover he was formerly a slave of a man called Philemon who lived in Colossae. And Paul is writing this letter uh, from prison. And the purpose of the letter is to intercede on behalf of Onesimus. That's the whole purpose of it. To have Philemon welcome Onesimus back, even though he's a runaway slave, even though that he was indebted to and was serving Philemon and a slave that it also seems he's stolen from Philemon when he left. Maybe he needed food for the road or he needed money or whatever. He stole things that were entrusted to him and took off on Philemon and ran away and ended up in Paul's circle. And Philemon wouldn't be real happy to see Onesimus, but Paul wants to restore that relationship and renew it so that the body of Christ, so that the church in Colossae can be whole. 
And Philemon had a church in his house. It says literally an assembly of the people that were meeting at the house. And Paul knew Philemon quite well. Paul tells us that he was always praying for Philemon and that he he misses the assistance that Philemon gave him. And then later on, we learn that he plans on staying as a guest. If, if you keep reading right at the end of the chapter there, it says, you know, prepare a place for me, prepare a room for me, because as soon as I get out of prison, I plan on visiting and I want you to stay with you. So this is a guy that Paul knows. This is somebody in Paul's circle of friends that Paul loves. He knows, and he knows Onesimus. He's got two friends. You've been in this situation, right? You've got two friends. You're friends with both of them, but they're not friends with each other. And so Onesimus is traveling back to Philemon, Paul's got both of these friends and he wants Onesimus and Philemon to be reconciled. And it's not an easy thing to reconcile. This is a a servant, a slave that has run away, stolen from the household, taken off, and now he's going back. And so in verse 10 and 11, Paul begins the explanation of of why this should be so, why they should be together and, 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 and there should be love and forgiveness here. He begins it with a bit of a pun. Uh, you know, which is always good in tense situations. Maybe start out with a joke. Uh, so Paul does that here to lighten the mood. Uh, who's going to be pretty upset with this guy standing there in front of him. You got to realize this is Onesimus bringing the letter to him and giving it to him. So he's standing there right in front of Philemon as he's reading it. And so he says, I appeal to you in verse 10 for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Okay, so Onesimus ran away, got in the circle of Paul. Maybe he was in prison in Rome too. Who knows? But he became a Christian. Paul says, he became my son. He's my spiritual offspring while I was in chain. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and me. Well, that's a real side splitter, right? Hilarious. Uh, It's because the name Onesimus means useful. (laughs) And so he says, he was once useful, was once useless to to you, but he has become useful to me again. So Paul starts out with this little play on Onesimus' name. And he tells Philemon that Onesimus has accepted Christ and that he's part of the family. And he says the fact that he has been so useful that he has been helping Paul in prison, as we read, is in ways that Paul had hoped that Philemon could help him. And so Paul says that Onesimus has come to me and since he's been saved, he's been helping me in the same way that you used to help me. Onesimus is just like you. He's like an extension of you. He's been making himself very useful in the same way that you make yourself useful to me. In the same way that you serve in the ministry, Onesimus has been serving in the ministry. And so Paul is painting this picture of Onesimus, of his new faith in Christ and his usefulness and how just like Philemon, Onesimus is. And so Paul wanted to keep him with him, but Paul would not keep Onesimus without Philemon's consent. Okay, this is a key point. He knew that there was an issue. Okay, he, somewhere along the way, he got the story. He knew Onesimus was a, was a runaway slave and that he owed this debt that he had stolen from Philemon. And so all the way from Rome, he sends him back. He says, you've got to go back to Colossae and you've got to get this sorted out. You can't move forward until this is reconciled, but I'll write a letter for you to take. Okay? And so Paul wanted to keep him, but he wouldn't keep him. And so... Without Onesimus facing Philemon and setting things right, it, it wasn't right. And there's a note here sort of that reconciliation really requires personal contact. This isn't something that Paul wanted done at a distance. This isn't something that was going to be done by email. Okay, Onesimus had to go and face Philemon. They had to meet to reconcile. They had to sit down face to face and be able to talk and discuss and work things out. But the first point here is that Paul's appeal is based on love. 
This is a sort of a critical point here in dealing with a situation where there's two brothers or two sisters or a brother and a sister that need to be reconciled. Paul is explicitly not forcing the reconciliation. In verse 8 and 9, he says that he is not using his authority to force it, but he's appealing based on love. He says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. And so Paul is saying to Philemon, he says, look, I'm your apostle. You know me. I helped plant the church there. You know, I'm really a spiritual elder to you. I'm basically your pastor, even though I'm not there. I could just say, look, Philemon, take this guy back, hug, kiss and make up. You're done. Just do it. And Paul's saying, I could order you to do it, but I'm not going to. What the Holy Spirit's revealed here is that, and what God has preserved here is this practical example of how Paul as a third party is assisting in the reconciliation Paul is basically going to bat for Onesimus. Rather than just ordering it to happen, he's making a commendation. He's stepping into the shoes of Onesimus. He's stepping between Onesimus and Philemon and, and being a, a benefactor of Onesimus or, a, or a, uh, an interceder for Onesimus. And he's paving the way and he's removing the barriers and the obstacles, but he's not demanding. He's, he's not keeping himself distant from the process He's investing himself into it. He's not just standing back and saying, this is what you have to do. There's a whole bunch of rules you have to follow. He's investing himself personally and putting himself in between Onesimus and Philemon so that this can happen in love and in relationship. So it's not just a problem between Onesimus and Philemon. It's a problem that includes Paul and it includes the whole church because they're part of the body. And that's what Paul recognizes here. He recognizes that it's for the health of the church in Colossae that this happens. And so Paul isn't judging or excusing what Philemon has done or what Onesimus has done. He's just putting the past in the past and focusing on the future. So the second thing is that Paul puts the focus on eternity and not on the present. He says in verse 15, Perhaps the reason that he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good or or forever. So he was separated for a little while, but maybe so that you would have him for eternity. Because now he's a Christian, now he's a brother. He's no longer a slave, but better than a slave, a dear brother. And so Paul shifts the focus to eternity. The fact that Philemon now has this eternal relationship with Onesimus, right? Getting used to the idea that we're going to be with each other for eternity. That you're now brothers and sisters for eternity. So whatever this thing is that this Onesimus did in your household, whatever it was that happened a year or two ago or whatever it was, Think about the fact that now you are brothers and sisters for eternity and what is in the future compared to what is in the past. And this is a pretty important perspective with regard to reconciliation and forgiveness. Whatever money or property that might have been stolen from Philemon is ultimately just moths and rust, right? Jesus said, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths destroy and rust destroys, right? There is no treasure that Philemon could have lost to Onesimus that is greater than the treasure that he now has in forgiving his former slave. The opportunity that Philemon now has to forgive Onesimus earns him a far greater reward than anything than Onesimus could have stolen. There's no debt worth repayment greater than the reward that Philemon already has in Christ and in heaven. And that's what Paul is referring to here when he shifts this focus from the present to eternity. And so by accepting Onesimus, as Paul is encouraging him to do, how much better is it to have a brother in Christ than to simply have a slave or a servant? 
In reconciliation, how much better to have a brother or sister rather than an enemy in the flesh. And so Paul shifts the focus to eternity. Next, Paul submits everything to the sovereignty of God. So in in this same statement, Paul is also making a direct reference to the sovereignty of God in controlling the circumstances of Philemon's and Onesimus' lives. Right, Referring to his departure for a little while, Paul points out that there may have been divine reasons for Onesimus' actions. Right, That perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was so that you might have him back forever. So Paul is not only looking to the future and looking to eternity and saying, Philemon, imagine the eternal significance of what has happened and don't worry about the temporal hurt or the temporal damage that was done. But he's also saying, maybe there's a bigger picture here, Philemon. God has his hand on everything. He works all things for good for those who love him. And so perhaps there's a greater sovereignty thing going on here in the life of Philemon and in Onesimus and in the church as a whole. That there are divine reasons for things. And we don't know the extent of God's purpose. And so when Onesimus took off and he stole from things, and Philemon, if he was like me, he was probably saying, now God, why did you let that happen? Right? I had this useful servant. I treated him like one of the family. I gave him access to the whole household. I trusted him. I put, you know, my heart on my sleeve with him. And, you know, I shared my life with him just like we do in the church. And he runs off and he steals from me on top of it. Why are you doing this, God? Why am I getting hurt this way? Why have you turned this this servant against me? Why am I being wounded? But Paul doesn't talk that way. Paul's words suggest to Philemon that it's not about him at all. Maybe it's not about you, Philemon. Maybe it's not about your, you know, silverware or whatever it is that he took. Maybe it's about something that God wasn't intending to harm Philemon, but ultimately to bring good for Onesimus. And many times in the Old Testament, we read about people who are unhappy with the circumstances of God that he's brought into their lives, and they're thinking that it's only going to cause harm, not knowing that there's a greater good in store for them if they're patient and commit it to God. Right? Classic example, Joseph, brothers, make him out for dead, throw him in a pit. We learn later on that Joseph is weeping in the pit why his brothers have done this and why his life is in the bottom of a pit doesn't get much worse but if we're patient and we understand the sovereignty of god his hand is on all of these things and that's what paul is teaching here in terms of intercession and then finally the main point here to help each other that paul's intercession is willing to pay any price and this is where i want to really land this whole concept of intercession that paul's intercession is willing to pay a price for intercession The idea that true intercession pays a price. What I had sometimes called intercession before, I don't think really was. When I was thinking intercession and I was thinking, oh, there's two people that are upset, I will go and facilitate a meeting with them. Or I will go and arbitrate between the two of them. Or I'll sit down and be a mediator between them. That's not interceding, okay? That's facilitation, that's mediation, that's arbitration. Okay, when I said intercede, I wasn't understanding intercede the way Paul understands intercede. It's not intercession the way the priests interceded for the people, the nation in the Old Testament. It's not the intercession that Christ performs for us on the cross and every day at the right hand of God. The intercession that is not facilitation or or mediation or maybe just meddling where I don't belong, whatever phrase you want to put on it, The idea of intercession here is that the intercessor pays a price. 
The intercessor is so concerned about the relationship that the intercessor steps in and says, I will pay a price to heal this relationship. I will take it. So now if we began to intercede for our brothers and sisters, reconciliation in this way, in our church, I think we'd see dramatic changes. Because you look at what Paul says in verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. And so you can probably imagine Paul's in prison. He's usually reciting these scriptures, or not scriptures, (laughs) they weren't scriptures then. Uh, He's reciting these things to a, a writer. And there's a scribe there who's writing what Paul is saying. You know, this is really, really old fashioned email. And so Paul is saying these things, but you can imagine at this point, he says, this is important. I'm going to take the pen. He says, I'm writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. This is like a check. This is like an agreement. This is like a contract. This is my signature. I'm writing this with my own hand. I'm going to pay it back. And so Paul now is exemplifying this Christ-like behavior in his intercession for Onesimus. First of all, he's, he's, he's this Christ-like behavior of Paul, first of all, is that he's identifying with an Onesimus, right? His first stage is identification. He says, welcome him as you would welcome me. Okay, I'm stepping into the place of Onesimus, just as Christ stepped into our place, right? Just as when God looks at us, who does he see? Who does, who does God see when he looks at us? He sees Christ, right? And so that's what Paul says. Paul says, welcome him as you would welcome me. He identifies with Onesimus. And then secondly, he pays whatever Onesimus owes. So he says, if you got a problem here, I'll pay it. Right? Out of my love for my brother, out of my love for you two, I will intercede and I won't just mediate. I won't just facilitate. I won't just, you know, help you guys understand each other so that you can work it out. As an intercessor, I'm stepping into this and I will pay whatever it costs to make it right. What do you need to make it right? Okay, I'll pay that. What do you need to make it right? Okay, I'll pay that. There, it's paid. You're reconciled now. Justice has been done. Whatever hurt has been done has been paid. I'll pay it so that you can be brothers again. Paul wants to remove any barrier from Philemon being able to reconcile with Onesimus. So Paul takes all the past debt and he says it's covered. He doesn't want any offense of the past to be left to interfere with Philemon's ability to forgive. And so Paul says, I will pay it. It's so important to me and to the church that you're reconciled that I will pay. Just as Christ said, it's so important that the world be reconciled to God that I will pay. So it's like asking, what do I need to do to make this work between my brothers or my sisters that I'm aware of where there's a problem? And if we make the first move to reconcile, to make payment, and this can literally be a payment, but it's usually an an emotional or sort of a relational investment, to invest in healing and forgiveness, it leaves the injured party with one less excuse to forgive. And it sets an example by making the first move. If an outsider to the situation who isn't actually responsible for the offense is willing to pay the price, then why can't the two people involved pay? 
And Jesus asks us essentially the same question in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus says, I'll forgive and I have forgiven, so now you forgive. I've already paid the price. You forgive. The Good Samaritan didn't arbitrate or facilitate, right? The Good Samaritan didn't come along to the guy who was beaten and bloody on the side of the road and say, okay, I'm going to go and get those guys who passed you by, and we're going to sit down, and they're going to apologize for walking by, you know, and they'll kick in and help pay for your, your hotel room. No, he just interceded. He, he just paid whatever was necessary to help the guy. Jesus doesn't facilitate. He doesn't arbitrate. Jesus just intercedes. He sits on the right hand of God, and as we approach the throne, he says to God, welcome this one as you would welcome me. And he goes on to say, Father, if there's anything due, I'll pay it. Right? Isn't that what Jesus is doing all the time? He's saying, when we come into the throne room of God, he's saying, Father, welcome this one just as you would welcome me. And if he owes anything, I'll pay it. That is the intercession that we learn in Philemon. That is the Christ-like intercession of Paul. It's not facilitation. It's not mediation. It's intercession. It's a price-paying intercession. And Paul does this as an example to the church of how reconciliation happens. We intercede for our brothers and sisters, and we make things right, paying whatever cost we need to pay because the church is to be unified. Because the bad knee goes to a bad hip and goes to a bad back, and then we can't serve the way we used to serve. And so if you turn to Ephesians 5, 29 and 30, and you had a finger in 1 Corinthians 12 as well, in Ephesians it says, After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Right? And then he says, if we are one, as members of his body in 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 1 Corinthians 12, 26, it says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. This is what Paul knows, and this is why he's willing to pay the price to intercede. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Do we really believe that? Right? Do we live out each day watching out for a suffering member in the church? Watching out for a broken relationship? And then do we put this truth into practice knowing that because I know that relationship is broken, I know the whole body eventually suffers? Do we actually live that out every day, every week? Man, I wish I could. I try. (laughs) But that's our ministry. We have the ministry of reconciliation. That's a ministry that's been given to the church. What can I do so that like, do I go to people and say, what can I do so that you can be reconciled? What can I do so that things are paid up and forgiveness are happened, can happen? If you're angry with him or they've hurt you or whatever, put it on me. I'll take the blame. Whatever it takes, let there be forgiveness. Because your unity is not just about you. It's about the whole church. There's a whole body here that we're all responsible to because we're part of. And so we can ask ourselves right now if there's a relationship that we're helping to restore right now. And if there is a relationship that we know of, and maybe we're even helping to restore it, are we investing and are we paying the price that needs to be paid to make it right? That's a good question. Paul says, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, why does he say that? Paul uses the same phrase from verse 7. Remember, he said Philemon in verse 7, he said, Philemon had refreshed, refreshed the hearts of his church assembly through love. He said to Philemon, your love is refreshing to the assembly of the church. 
And so Paul now, after explaining this, he says, come on, Philemon, refresh my heart. Show your love. Just like you love your whole church, love Onesimus. Mend this fence. Fix this broken relationship. Because it's refreshing to the church that you love. So because we're one body, that means some quick, some quick applications. Because we're one body and the hurt spreads, it's not healthy to avoid interceding when you know there's an offense. I hope I got these in the right order. I do. When you know there's offense, it's not healthy for the body to avoid interceding, right? When my knee hurts, it is not healthy for my body to just pretend it doesn't hurt and not intercede. Okay? You can make things right. It's our duty to each other as brothers and sisters to intercede. And the Holy Spirit reveals things to you, right? Like I might know that there's a problem over here and you might know that there's a problem over here. We don't all know everybody's business. But when the Holy Spirit reveals it to you that there's an issue, then that's for you to go and talk. That's for you to go and intercede. Not just to sit back and say, well, those two should sort things out. No. The Holy Spirit's revealed it to you to intercede. It's not healthy to avoid interceding when you know there's an offense that you can intercede for. Secondly, it's not healthy to be unforgiving or to hold on to your hurt as some sort of trump card over the other people, right? You know, at the same time, if there is a valid offense, if you are legitimately hurt and if, and if, and if, and that happens, right? There's offenses in the church, legitimate hurts. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying brush everything under the carpet. There are legitimate hurts. Sometimes we ask too much of our body and something gets hurt, something gets dislocated, something gets wounded. But when there's a legitimate hurt, you can't refuse treatment. You can't just sit back and say, well, I'm not going to reconcile. You know what? Because I kind of like having this bad knee. You know, Because I'm special now that I have this bad knee. Right? I get a lot of attention because of my bad knee. I'm just not going to reconcile. You know, Because then I can, this can just be, I can just talk about this all the time. This can be my identity. It's not healthy to be unforgiving. You can't prefer to be hurt to justify how you feel. Right? Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, right? You can't hold long accounts. You've got to keep them short. Thirdly, it's not easy, it's not healthy to be easily offended, right? Prevention is the best medicine. The best way to not need reconciliation is don't be offended in the first, in the first place, right? You know, if you have a body part that's easily hurt, it gets really annoying, right? Like now my knee, it hurts often when I run. I can't run as far as I can't run as fast. I can't push it as hard. And so my knee is just always on the back of my mind. I always have to be careful of my knee. And so the best, healthiest thing for the church, it's not healthy to be easily offended. It's healthier if my body was like it was when I was 20, when I could throw anything at it and I could never offend it, right? When I could do anything and my body would just respond in strength, you know, like, I could never hurt my knee. I could carry whatever. I could run as far. I could play football. I could do whatever. I play football now. I'm a broken puddle at the end of the end zone after the first play, right? But when you think of the church, when you think of a body, the best medicine is prevention. The best thing is just not to be easily offended in the first place. Be a strong body. Be able to take it because we're in the world with the enemy. So be healthy. Fourthly, it's not healthy to pretend you're not offended. You have not offended somebody when you know that you have. Right? We do that too. Sometimes we do things. We say something. We send an email. Whatever. We've gone offside. And we realize, okay, we've hurt their feelings. And we know why we're getting the tr- silent treatment. But we're just going to... Nothing has explicitly been said yet. So I'm just going to pretend I didn't offend anybody. 
I'm going to pretend that I didn't hurt them when I know I did. It's not healthy. Just own up to it. Like Onesimus. Make the long journey from Rome to Colossae. It was probably by foot. You can imagine that journey. Onesimus carrying this letter. And he's walking and he's walking and he's walking and he's walking. And the end of that destination is Philemon. The guy that he ran away from and stole from. That's not a happy journey, but it's a healthy journey. It's a journey that Onesimus has to take for the health of the body. So don't pretend you haven't offended when you have. And it's not healthy to think that it doesn't affect the whole church. We've already talked about that. It's not healthy to sit in your corner and say, this is just between me and him, and yeah, I'm angry, but it doesn't bother anybody else. It does. It bothers everybody when there's broken relationships in the church. You don't think your broken relationships don't bother people? They do. They hurt everyone. It's not just about you. You don't get that option. Just like being in any family, you don't have an option of not being in the family. Whatever happens to you affects everybody. So the core of Paul's teaching here is that reconciliation needs help. That's what I'm trying to leave you with today. Okay? The whole point here is that Paul was willing to help. We need help. It is hard to reconcile. Super hard. And so what the church needs, and I just mean the church globally, maybe what this church needs too, is it needs people who are willing to intercede and help with reconciliation. It needs five or six or ten or twenty people who are just got their radar on for reconciliation and their job, their ministry in the church is just to heal relationships. Just intercede and reconcile. We had a bunch of reconciliation deacons or whatever you want to call them who just reconciled. He helped people reconcile. Man, how much that would just be amazing. So four quick points to remember Paul's practical steps to reconciliation. Love. Restoration can't be forced. It has to happen when they're ready to forgive. And then the whole church has to be ready to encourage and acknowledge that forgiveness when it happens in love. My mom and I were just talking this morning because we were at the Overlook Park. I'll be done here in a minute. We were at the Overlook Park, uh, the Skyline Park or whatever. We're looking over everything. And there was, there was a family there. And the, the grandpa was holding on to the grandchild. And the, his son and daughter-in-law were there. And uh, so, I mean, it wasn't really dangerous or whatever, but he was doing the little, oh, you know, over the edge, not over the cliff, but just on the little wall she was standing on. But the daughter turned to him and said, I love you, Dad, but I don't like what you're doing. (laughs) I love you, Dad, but I don't like you right now. Okay, that's important to remember. We love each other. We We don't always like what we do to each other. We don't always like what we're doing. Reconciliation happens in love. Second thing is perspective, right? To forgive, we have to have a focus on eternity, not the past. Whatever harm is done here, whatever has been done in the past, we have a future together in eternity, a reward in heaven far greater than anything that could have the, co- the hurt could have cost us here. By forgiving, we have a reward in heaven far greater. Thirdly, sovereignty, to remember that God is sovereign over these things. Yeah, I'm hurt, I'm wounded, but I don't know the big picture of what's going on here. God is doing things. I can get on my knees and I can pray. I'm hurt, God. I don't like being in my garden of Gethsemane right now. But if this is a cross I have to go to because of a greater purpose of yours, then I'll bear it. Fourth, costly intercession. The fact that the whole body is affected and so it's up to us to pay the price to reconcile each other just as Christ has set an example for us to pay the price to reconcile us to God. And then Paul closes off his letter with words that ring in our hearts so they should Paul says, confident of your obedience, I write to you. 
knowing that you're going to do even more than I ask. That was Paul's confidence in Philemon, that he would be this type of Christian, that he would be this type of person to go above and beyond even reconciliation, to who knows what, just more than what Paul is asking. Confident that we'll do even more than this, that we will exceed expectations when it comes to forgiveness and reconciliation. And so I don't know what we need to do as a church to reconcile, right? It's the big elephant in the room. Broken relationships among ourselves, broken relationships with people who aren't even here anymore, relationships that we are wounded over. How are we going to reconcile? I'm not answering that question this morning other than this sermon. (laughs) But what are we going to do to be the church that takes the step? What are we going to do to be the people or the family that takes the first step? What are we going to be to be the do to be the Paul that steps in between the Philemon and the Onesimus? And I don't know what it takes. Writing a letter? Maybe it's writing a letter. A meeting? Identifying with that person? Having a coffee? But we want to be the church that Paul has set the example of here, knowing that it affects the whole body. Not just the whole body of Lakeside. The whole body of the Church of Christ in Halliburton. The whole body of the Church of Christ in the world. That's my prayer, that we would take that step. And it starts at the cross. We got to take our hurt, we got to take our burden, we got to take our offense to the cross and let God show us how to reconcile. Worship team.